Time Studios and The Real. I'm Mark Olson. And we're here this week to talk about representation and diversity within the media itself. And to, to join me in that, I've got my colleagues. Your chief of diversity, Travel Anderson. Justin Chang. Jenny Amato. And now the conversation about diversity and representation with regards to what appears on screen in film and television has been ongoing for a while now. But recently there's been a parallel conversation that's really been gaining momentum about diversity and representation within the ranks of the media itself. And now Travel, in no small part, at least to my mind, the momentum for this really began earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival, which I know you were there. Maybe you can sort of set the table for us a little bit and kind of tell us what maybe the, the parameters of what this conversation that's growing are. Yeah, so at Sundance, I was um, asked to be about a, a conversation with this group of other Black reporters and critics that were there. It was about five or six of us. Many of the others were freelancers, right? And it was led by this woman known online as Valerie Complex, and she basically wanted to know what our experiences were like at the festival. And many of those experiences for the freelancers were, you know, they couldn't get access, they couldn't get tickets, they couldn't talk to talent, they couldn't get publicists to return their emails, even to get a simple no. They couldn't even get a no, right? And then with my particular experience, while I had access, I would experience being in a long line of people waiting to go in with our, you know, executive press passes or whatever, and literally everyone in the line would be able to walk in without getting their pass checked, but they would stop me and check my badge. Different things like that. And basically, we all kind of just like shared our opinions and our thoughts about like things that potentially could be done to improve our experiences and invariably other people's experiences at a festival like that. And what I know from that is that Val Complex has a lot of relationships with different celebrities because through working with black girl nerds, a lot of the hustle that they've had to do to get talent to talk to them is like DMing somebody, DMing Tessa Thompson, being like, hey, we would really like to interview you. We tried going through your publicist and she said no. And so through those connections, Val and some other people basically started having these conversations about what response could look like. And as I understand it, that's where, you know, the Sundance and the TIFF decision through Time's Up to allot 20% of their top-tier badges to press of diverse, marginalized communities kind of comes from. But, you know, this is a conversation that I think journalists of color at large generally have always been having about how we see even now an increase of diversity on screen, but we don't necessarily see those similar voices reflected back in the criticism and in the opportunities to kind of talk about those movies. And now, Jen, you wrote about a USC Annenberg Initiative story that sort of tried to put some metrics to some of what we're talking about here. What were some of the things that were in that study? I think Travell wrote about the study coming out, right? Probably, yes. Yes, that happened. Anyways, this USC Annenberg study came out telling us what we already know, which is that most professional film critics are white men. Shocking. I mean, not shocking. Um, But it does help, I think, to put numbers on these things, which is, I think, the most helpful thing that comes out of studies like this. Annenberg's study found that of the top 100 films at the box office in 2017, of all of the reviews that were written of all of those films, 77.8% of them were written by men. And they further break it down by male, female, and then underrepresented, as in other identity groups, not underrepresented. And it's really shocking when you break it down more and more 
all the way to only 18% of all of those reviews were written by underrepresented critics, which is like not shocking if you've ever been to a press screening or a junket or, you know, you read reviews regularly. But it, I, again, I think it is really helpful to put numbers on these things so that we can track whether over time things improve or get worse. And now I know that you did, in fact, Jen, write about a speech that Brie Larson gave where she was accepting an award, and she used that as an opportunity to announce the initiatives that Travel mentioned that both the Sundance Festival and the Toronto Film Festivals are undertaking. And so give me a little more context to that of what kind of Brie's speech was about and what maybe those initiatives are trying to accomplish. Right. Brie Larson took the opportunity, I think, which is really great, to use her platform as a celebrity, not just a celebrity, but probably one of the more powerful, visible women in Hollywood right now, to illuminate this Annenberg report and to call out how imbalanced uh, imbalanced film criticism is, um, and therefore call for more media diversity, not just across, I think, entertainment journalism, but in film criticism, because her argument was that when movies are not specifically reviewed, I think, by a broad representation of critics who also reflect the makeup of America and the world, you know, the makeup of the audience, the movie-going audience, then you have an imbalance in the perspectives that are being written about those films. You have an imbalance in the championing that, that is being made for movies, smaller movies, niche movies that need it the most. I'm really glad that she called it out because film criticism is so male. And no offense intended for, you know, all of my guy film critic friends. But it's really, really glaring. Travel pointed out that black journalists on Twitter use the power of social media to illuminate this problem. And I think that has been really, really crucial and instrumental in putting this into the greater conversation and making people aware of how much of a problem it is. And now, Justin, off of Bree's speech, some of the commentary that came around it, but there are also comments from a couple of other kind of notable women in Hollywood. You wrote an essay in response to that, that now itself, your essay is being widely cited as other people are continuing to write about this. So tell me a little about just kind of your responses and what maybe the crux of your essay was about. Yeah, I wanted to preface it by saying that I really admire Brie Larson for sticking her neck out and I think critics are generally regarded with everything from indifference to fear to contempt by the Hollywood community. So it was nice to hear a celebrity say, even if she kind of phrased it sort of grudgingly, it really sucks, but reviews matter (laughs) for them to engage and say, yes, we are somewhat important. We are somewhat relevant. She also said reviews can changed someone's career and it definitely changed hers. I think she phrased it that way in a somewhat humorous way, but I don't think Brie Larson thinks for a minute that it sucks that reviews matter. She knows better than anyone I know. I talked to her at Telluride when Room (laughs) premiered to rapturous reviews, one of them written by yours truly. She would not have won that Oscar and all that slew of Best Actress awards if it had not been for the persistent, consistent adulation of critics. So I agree with just about, I'd say 90 to 95% of what she was saying. And I hope... I really didn't want to come off and write like a mansplaining piece. It's like, and I knew that's, although I was kind of pleasantly surprised that not a lot of people took it that way because it wasn't meant to be that way at all. And in fact, the ideas that I were articulating were things that I saw, I shared completely, but I it was actually seeing really great female critics like Alison Wilmore and Jessica Kiang putting it out there. They were affronted by Brie Larson's remarks. Not all of them, just the one part when she did say, 
I don't need to know what a 40-year-old white dude thinks of A Wrinkle in Time. It wasn't made for him, which raises this really interesting question because it's like I understand, you know, I completely understand. It's like, you know, the odd thing about Wrinkle in Time, it is a kind of an odd thing to bring up, is that my understanding is that a lot of the black critics who reviewed it kind of hated it and really, you know, and that a lot of white critics or non-black critics were sort of tiptoeing a little bit more around it because everyone like loves Ava DuVernay and wants her to succeed. And there was this perception that some were going easy on her while others were not. So it just raises this interesting question of what is the purpose of criticism? Is the purpose of criticism to champion? Of course it is, to champion and to advocate. But this idea that the target audience for a movie would incline to go easier on that movie or the presumed target audience, I would say, like the idea that, say, a movie like Girls Trip being reviewed by mostly black women would be inclined to go easier on that film, I think is really problematic. And I think that what this insulting of white critics saying that we don't need to hear from you, in the end of the day, it doesn't serve minorities very well. I think we are sort of silenced because it suggests that we should only turn our attention to a particular type of film. And I have to say... As a Chinese-American critic, a phrase I have never written in a single review all my life, quite proudly, (laughs) I am really affronted by the idea that my particular expertise should come in Asian-American film, not just because there are barely any of them, but because, and I wrote this in the essay, if I had been held back by that, I would never have fallen in love with movies and wanted to write about them. Travel, I think there had been comments made by Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett about their film Ocean's 8, where they seemed to be implying that if there had been more female critics reviewing the film, the film would have been received more favorably, even though a number of the sort of most notable female critics in the country didn't particularly like or gave someone mixed reviews to the film. And so I think what Justin's talking about, in some ways, what is the true meaning of diversity within the critical ranks. It's not that black critics will be sympathetic and, quote, understanding of black films or women will be sympathetic and understanding towards female-directed or female-centered films. What, for you, is the purpose of diversity in the critical ranks? Before I answer that, I do want to say that I do think that there is, maybe it's not that, like, black critics will be more forgiving of a black film, but I think there's a lot of nuance that that particular identity might you know, give to them and their criticism of a particular work, right? So people are always talking about, like, Tyler Perry movies, for example. I feel like black critics generally can go into a Tyler Perry movie and say, this is a really bad movie, but I know 15 people who will be here opening night, and it serves a particular audience. And I think that's what a lot of folks' identities allow them to do in ways that perhaps uh, a white critic's identity may not allow them to do. That being said, this conversation around diversity and inclusion in film criticism and media at large is about saying that I want to hear the 40-year-old white man's perspective, but I don't just want to hear his perspective. I also want to hear everybody else's so that we can have this full, well-rounded, nuanced conversation about the art that's coming out. And I think a great way to kind of remove this from the abstract is, Jen, you tweeted something recently regarding the film Sicario, Day of the Soldado, and the idea that there weren't a lot of Latino critics that were getting a Latinx critic that were getting a chance to write about that movie, even though it deals very specifically with the situation at the sort of Mexican-American border. And so for you, that conversation about maybe that movie in particular, but then also kind of broaden it out to like what Travel was saying, like what this means. Right. I tweeted out just this 
other website, remezcla.com, I think, which focuses on Latinx takes on entertainment and culture. And uh, what they did was a really valuable and a really rare thing, which was to ask critics of Latin heritage what they thought of Sicario 2, a movie that purports to like represent, at least in part, the experiences of Hispanic and Latin people. It's a border crime thriller sequel not made by a Latin director or writer. And certainly I, for one, would want a critical say in something that purported to represent my experience or an experience similar to mine. And like many ethnicities, that is one that is widely not visible in the field of film criticism. And if you read a lot of Latino and Latina critics on Sicario 2, you get what Travell is describing, which is an informed sort of perspective, cultural and lived perspective, on a, an experience that is reflected back to a critic who also knows how to talk about film. And that, I think, is a perspective that is sorely lacking and should be sought out more, not just with movies like Sicario 2, but movies like Isle of Dogs with Justin. <laughs> Justin and I spoke Absolutely. a lot about a lot earlier this about. year, and I had a lot of feelings about. So it's sort of the idea that, that film criticism as a field has never, I mean, there's been never a, a concerted effort to diversify it or similar in broader journalism and entertainment journalism. Media diversity is this sort of elusive thing that until recently we haven't been talking about because who is in position to make that a reality? Well, I think that now that we are talking about it more and more, we are all in a position to take responsibility for our part in that and being aware of it and talking about it and realizing that the impact that it has or would have on the output of criticism and discourse around mass entertainment would be so, so valuable and is something that we need. I just want to echo everything everyone's been saying, and I want to zero in on something Travell said about the cultural insight that a particular group can bring to their reviews of something is tremendously valuable. And that is almost, it almost exists apart from the more prosaic question of whether this movie is any good or not, right? And that is, to me, it's like, I think what we're getting at here is that criticism is such a rich thing. I mean, it's like, it seems like we're, I come, you know, I'm biased as one myself, but there's a reason I, I wanted to do this for a living. And it's because there was just a tremendous amount of freedom. You know, there's so many ways to do the job and to do it well. And I think that people sometimes do have this idea that what we do is simply giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down to something. And one of the reasons why I do have trouble with this idea that like of just we don't need the white male opinions anymore. And I completely empathize with the idea sometimes that we all probably have, which is like, yes, could they just shut up for a hundred years and let, let you know, us catch <laughs> up a little, let us know? catch up a little bit. <laughs> completely understand that point of view. But the thing, of course, sadly, things do not work that way, especially in a field where full-time, well-paying jobs are so few and far between, that the sad reality is we, you know, and it's not just the history of film criticism is largely, absolutely a history of white male voices, although that discounts, you know, people like Pauline Kael, the greatest film critic who ever lived. You know, it's like, but it does. Exception to the rule. Exception, you know, sure. And if you're looking at on the level of numbers, you know, but the history of film criticism is not just a history of oppressive white male voices. It's a history of enormous scholarship, a lot of insight, really great writing. 
I'm just not ready to throw that out the window yet. So I don't, you know, it's this kind of burn it all down perspective that to me doesn't understand. Like if people are saying that we don't need this, let's start fresh. You know, we don't need to hear from any particular group of people, whether that's a majority or a minority. I don't think they begin to understand or value what criticism is really all about. Well, Jen, that was in the the piece that you wrote after Brie Larson's speech. Some of the comments were made by Andrea Grauf, the head of the press department at the Toronto Film Festival. She said something I just found so insightful, which was that, you know, for the festival, it's really not about numbers. It's also about engagement. The idea that by the festival making this effort to reach out to critics who represent communities that don't get a lot of representation, the festival itself is going to be reaching new communities and that it's really just going to help the whole ecosystem of film festivals and movies to sort of make this effort. Like, I just personally found that comment from her, like, just so insightful and really reframed for me a lot of what this conversation can even be about. Yes, I found Andrea Grau of Toronto Film Festival to be so thoughtful and insightful. To backtrack a little bit, I spoke with representatives from the Toronto Film Festival and the Sundance Film festivals because both of those festivals, two of the most influential and major film festivals in the world, have both committed to increasing the diversity of their accredited journalists in their next iterations of their festival, Sundance being in January and Toronto being this coming September, which is fast approaching. How they do it is going to be very interesting. Both of them committed a 20% commitment to diversifying in different ways. Sundance has said that their 20% means that by their upcoming January festival, 20% of their accredited journalists will be underrepresented journalists. And Toronto, on the other hand, which is already a very international festival, has committed to adding 20% more journalists of underrepresented backgrounds. And to them, that includes not just gender and ethnicity, but sexual orientation and disabled critics. That's a festival that has paid a lot of very public attention to issues of indigenous peoples in Canada. Happy belated Canada Day, by the way, to everybody. Um in light of this, I am very <laughs> celebratory of Canada. Thank you, Canada. Um, so it's very important that festivals like Sundance in Toronto take the initiative to shoulder the responsibility for their part that they play in the ecology of films. Because this is where many films, both studio films that are chasing Oscars and independent films that need critical support to attract distribution, that's where all of these films begin. So to say we, these festivals, recognize that this is a crucial starting point for discourse and for potentially an actual life of a film, for it to be able to reach its audience. And we recognize that who we let in to write about these films, to be the first critics and journalists to write about these films, to identify what is important about them, to analyze them and set the conversation. Who writes that is important. And we realize that we have the power to broaden the scope of that body of journalists is really, really big. And I hope other people, not just festivals, not just public facing entities in the industry, but everybody in the industry realizes that they can each play a part within their own worlds, whether that's publicists or studio executives or journalists or editors who have the power to hire and or assign reviews. Everybody has a part that they play and can do something to contribute to increased media diversity. 
I want to quote something that Jacqueline Coley said for the film critics project that I'm working on. And it's that we need to make sure that these conversations we're having around access are like responsible and that they're fully thought out. Right. So with Sundance and TIFF, you know, doing this 20 percent thing, you know, what does it look like for someone who can't afford to go? Is there funding available to get them there? Is there support and connection to get them to, you know, an editor or an outlet that will purchase said work? You know, it's so many other types of conversations that need to be happening. It's not just an access thing. And so I want to make sure and I hope that the conversations that we're having think of that as well, because it's this is a very like broad conversation and there are so many different solutions that have to happen all at the same time in order for for us to have any kind of increase or any kind of sustained improvement in representation. And to Jen's point, like literally everyone who's in this industry has a role to play. I just want to shout out, you know, like Lil Rel Howery, who when it comes to outlet placement on red carpets, usually black outlets and other outlets that cater to specific audiences, they get placed at the end of the red carpet. And because the talent is doing 50 interviews at the top of the carpet of these outlets that are big, Time runs out a lot of times or they get tired and then they're whisked inside before getting the chance to speak to some of these smaller outlets. And this includes black talent who, for many of them, have been supported by these smaller black blogs before The Hollywood Reporter and Variety and The L.A. Times thought them worthy enough for coverage. Right. And so Lil Rel Howery and his team, they decided that at the MTV TV and Movie Awards, which is, you know, no one cares about that award show, but still it matters. Millennials. Right. Millennials care. (laughs) us young people. But he decided that he was going to prioritize black press and black press outlets. And so he spoke to them first and then made his way back to the bigger outlets if there was time. Um, Lakeith Stanfield saw a black digital editor for Global Grind, her name is Stephanie, tweet about her experience on the red carpet at an Atlanta For Your Consideration event. I mean, she spoke about how there were three black women from three black outlets placed at the end of the line, and they were the only ones who didn't get to speak to anyone from the cast from this decidedly black show. And she shared her experience and how typically black reporters, journalists of color, primarily speaking in other marginalized communities, don't have the chance to actually talk to these people. And in my interview with him and Tessa Thompson for Sorry to Bother You, he at least said that now he's conscious of it. He didn't pay attention to it before. And so I do think that there seems to be some energy changing. One last shout out to Jaleesa Lachey. During that conversation I was having at Sundance with Black folks who were there, she asked a question of uh, from Black Tree TV. She asked a question of Sterling K. Brown after he became the first Black man to win an Emmy for Best Actor in a Drama Series, just two weeks after becoming the first Black man to win the same award at the Golden Globes. I mean, she asked him, did he ever realize the lack of diversity within these media press rooms and within the people he talks to? And he didn't. And so now he's at least come out and said that he has a concerted effort to make sure that his team ensures that a diverse pool of people are brought in to talk to him. And so there's so much conversation happening. And I think social media has has helped a lot of folks share their particular experiences. But we just need to make sure that we're being as detailed and as as possible when it comes to these solutions that we are putting forward. And then you mentioned the project you're working on now, which is you were talking to a series of critics and entertainment journalists who come from underrepresented communities. And tell me, for you as someone who already knows a lot about those experiences and about what those people would be telling you, I'm curious what for you have been some of the big takeaways as you've been putting this project together? What do you feel like you've learned from those conversations you've been having? 
I mean, I think the main thing that we all can learn from these conversations around diversity and inclusion is that many of us have various levels of privilege in this conversation. And at different times, we all need to shut up and let other people speak. So whether that be, you know, allowing uh, Native and Middle Eastern critics who I couldn't find any based in Los Angeles to participate in this project, but they do exist, allowing them to speak or allowing disabled critics to, to speak about their very different experiences of access and support on red carpets and at film screenings and for film festivals, right? You don't think of the fact that a lot of disabled critics, one of that I have in the project, her name is Kristen Lopez, she travels with a companion, with another person to assist her getting in and out of spaces like that. Is Toronto and Sundance, if she gets the opportunity to go, are they going to provide funding and support for this extra body that she needs with her, you know, to do her job. I was just struck by, and I knew this already, but hearing so many different vantage points, it's like, okay, we can't get big heads because we breathe this rarefied air and we have this access. We have to make sure that we provide greater opportunity for other people as well. That reminds me of a note in Justin's essay that I really loved about empathy and sort of cinematic empathy. And I think that extends to us thinking about our position in the industry, us in this room, literally as critics and journalists, but also everybody. Movies mean so much and can have such an impact. And the people who make that now, you know, like behind the scenes, we are talking about Hollywood shaping up. And hiring more female directors, which it still isn't doing, and more directors of color, which it also still isn't really addressing concretely, I believe. But that also extends to our worlds. But, Justin, I'd love to hear more about that idea. Yeah, empathy and a term that I think is really important to keep in mind, uh, sympathetic imagination, which is kind of as the basis for all art and I think for all criticism, too. And it goes both ways because I think I used that in the piece to argue why, you know, it's you are not bound by your identity, whether you're a white man or a black woman or an Asian American transgender, whatever you are. This is very obvious, but it still bears repeating artist specific. And the more specific it is, sometimes the more universal it is. And we can all, you know, those are not barriers to appreciation. So I just sometimes use that to kind of rebut the idea that, you know, whatever you are, that you're limited by that, that those are limitations. And I, I just really disagree with that. And I'm just totally kind of bouncing off, responding to a lot of things people are saying, but it's, you know, what Travel was saying, festivals are prohibitively expensive a lot of the time. And that's a huge important thing. If the Telluride Film Festival were to, were to suddenly boost their, represent, their underrepresented critics, I mean, that would be, I, I don't think it's going to happen. It would be amazing. But to speak about a festival that is prohibitively expensive to attend, I'm really curious to hear. Shout what, out Telluride. Yes. Still waiting for an answer. <laughs> to uh, some of my emails on the subject. Oh, would interesting. I didn't know you were going to say, yeah, no. I'd love to hear. I mean, they're, it's it's interesting because, of course, they are not, you know, in terms of just sheer size and, and what the curation of their program, they are this much smaller thing. It's smaller in terms of perhaps size and number of films, but not, not smaller in terms, in terms of, of impact yeah, and influence. and do they have, as an influential film festival, no matter the size, no matter their press accreditation process, which is very unusual, do they have a responsibility to acknowledge the impact that they have on the film landscape? It's really interesting because having attended festivals and having had the great pleasure and privilege, absolutely, of attending international film festivals for the past 12 years, there's this weird combination of 
egalitarianism and elitism that kind of <laughs> comes together at these events, right? And you're going to Cannes in the south of France to, you know, and drinking rosé and, you know, you expensive, you know, hotel room or Airbnb or whatever to watch films about, you know, social justice and watch films about, you know, refugees. It's like there's this weird disconnect there. And these are the places where I have met, by and large, maybe not as many, I haven't met as many African-American critics as I would like to see at Cannes, you know, especially this past one where Spike Lee's Black Klansman premiered. I wish that there had been more black critics, male and female, writing about that movie from Cannes. We will hopefully hear from them when the movie comes out in August. But uh, that's important. But then at the same time, it is a place where, you know, places like Cannes and Venice, where you do meet a lot of critics from all over the world and you see this great range of films from all the world. So few things have been more eye-opening for me personally than to go to these places where, sadly, I think a lot of minority critics are still underrepresented, except from other parts of the world. I grew up in a very diverse place in the Bay Area, and then I moved to Los Angeles, also very diverse. And the first time I went to the Sundance Film Festival, it was the first time I'd seen Snowfall. And it was the whitest place I'd ever been to. Literally. Literally. Because of the snow. And that is, that is I mean, Amer- arguably the preeminent American independent film festival, or at least it is where American film is showcased, the best in American film. And so you want not only to see a breadth of American perspectives from such a film festival, but you want to see those perspectives also analyzed by a diverse body of people and that just still doesn't happen and it's interesting to think too because i think sundance has absolutely been on the cutting edge for years before the diversity conversation really got going in hollywood they led the way in a lot of ways in terms of black filmmakers female filmmakers oh, yeah. putting the competition but you're native right native american filmmakers absolutely. environmentalism yeah. sundance is like the Julie Dash, hello you know hello it's like liberal yes, totally. bastion of film festivals and yet but not represented in the makeup of the media themselves. With some of the movies that are coming up for later this summer, I mean, as we're having this conversation now, we're sort of on the cusp of seeing, as you mentioned, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, but also the films Sorry to Bother You and Blind Spotting, Sicario that just came out. We're going to have Crazy Rich Asians coming out later in the summer. And also a film that I have been thinking about a lot uh, that was at Sundance this year, the film Nancy, directed by Christina Cho, that she's an Asian-American filmmaker, made a film that's not necessarily Asian-American themed, but is in many ways about identity, passing, how do you sort of make your way through the world? And so that's a film that I definitely would have liked to have seen more female Asian-American critics writing about. And so as we sort of see the movies that are on the horizon, maybe what should audiences be doing to maybe help this conversation? Are there certain critics any of you want to shout out for people to be looking for? Or like kind of like what, in some ways, what's the action item for people like at home? I mean, I think one of it is just, you know, to seek out those voices of people from whatever background that you respect, whether you agree with their opinion or you don't, right? And you can be a black queer person and want to read Justin Chang's criticism or to read insert white man's name here, and that's fine, but take that criticism and share it. It's particularly important for the freelancers that are out there of different communities. It's particularly important for those who don't have 
full-time jobs, those who are still kind of perfecting their voice and still emerging into the industry to have a level of support that they can demonstrate to an outlet in order to get some type of sustained piece of a career um, in film criticism. So that would be my suggestion. Find when you see something that resonates with you or that you even just want to disagree with publicly and engage in conversation with, um, share it and engage with that person and let people know what you're interested in reading and seeing. I have to say the year is still very young and yet it feels like a watershed one for female directors already and more to come, I hope, I'm sure. Jen's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> this is why maybe, maybe, maybe some of these you haven't heard so much. Um, you know, you've heard of some of the, uh, Lynn Ramsey with You Were Never Really Here, Lucrecia Martel with Zama, which might be my favorite movie of the year so far. Argentinian female director. Everyone should absolutely see it. It's a really challenging film and a brilliant one. Leave No Trace, which opened this weekend to really good specialty box office, directed by the brilliant Deborah Granick of Winter's Bone and Stray Dog and Down to the Bone. Claire Denise, Let the Sunshine In. Chloe Zhao with The Writer. Valeska Griesbach with Western. I know some of these you've heard of, some of these you haven't. And I would advise people to, you know, catch up with the ones you've heard and pay attention to the ones you haven't. But I'm at this point now, <laughs> sometimes I thought, it'd be kind of, you know, there will be some great white male filmmakers who come out with something brilliant this year. <laughs> I love Ari Aster and Hereditary. Hello. But it's like, you cannot say that there are no alternative choices this year. There absolutely are. I might point out, Justin, that those really great recommendations of female-directed films are all either independent or foreign. And the American mainstream studio system is not supporting female directors. This was also the year of Ava DuVernay and A Wrinkle in Time, Kate Cannon and Blockers, which I didn't care for, but it is its milestone in its way, and I think that movie did well. It was reasonably well reviewed, you know. So, and you have uh, um, Jennifer Yeah Nelson with The Darkest Minds yes. comes out in a couple weeks, though the film is questionable. Can we count the number no. of female directors of studio movie on one hand, two hands? This year. This year. The numbers are still so dire, and uh, while I'm glad that there are great female directors making great films this year, those are not movies that wide audiences, like big, big audiences, are going to go see. and uh, Or even have access to, right? Or have access to. Well, as, I mean, we were saying uh, kind of before we got started, that it was interesting just over the weekend before we we were recording, that the critic, the mighty Manola Dargis, along with filmmaker Ava DuVernay and writer Terrell McCraney, were all sort of like having a conversation on Twitter about this very point of access, that the fact that the movie Selma could not show in Selma, the movie Straight Outta Compton could not show in Compton, and Moonlight could not show in Liberty City, where the movie itself was shot and took place. And so it's interesting to me that sort of like every step of this conversation, from what's on screen, who gets to write about it, to then where physically are those screens, who can get to them, is a conversation that we never stop having. Because I think, at least to me, one of my perceptions of this is that you know, Hollywood as a sort of an entity and an industry in a state of mind basically wants to consider problems solved and like move on to our poolside lifestyle and like not worry about it. And so the idea that like you can never stop worrying about it, there's always some other part of this mechanism that can be fixed or can like draw our attention, I think is in itself a radical idea and one of the most important ideas to sort of be coming out of the moment that we're in that like this isn't going to stop it's not something that's going to be solved and like be done with like this is like a mindset lifestyle sort of eternal change of like what we have to deal with well also we haven't even solved one part of it there's been no solving so uh i think it's really crucial that we all keep talking about these things there are 
efforts being made to, I think, do so in a more organized manner. A new sort of review entity called Cherry Picks emerged, the brainchild of a producer named Miranda Bailey, to serve the needs of film reviews and reviews of other kinds of art like written by women to eliminate how few <laughs> women really are reviewing art and film and whatever else. This is a, a place where you can go that will highlight only female voices. But honestly, I think it's overall a, a constructive thing to have things like that populate, add to the landscape. But also, I wouldn't want that to have to be what happens for every single individual group or underrepresented community to just make their own version of Rotten Tomatoes is not the solution. The solution is for wider industry to be better about it. I think there's a real lesson in what you said, Jen. This applies to the industry itself. I was perfectly fine with Ocean's 8 and, you know, I did not care much for Ghostbusters, but it's like just kind of sad if we're saying that, you know, in the interest of quid pro quo that obviously women have more in them <laughs> in terms of talent in terms of ability than just making the female version of a hugely successful male property like that. And the movie can be good. It could even be great. And it's interesting. I want to touch quickly on just what Ava DuVernay said, you know, in the conversation she had with Manola and Terrell. And I've seen her speak up for this before. And one of the reasons why she's a big advocate for Netflix, and of course, which distributed her film 13th, is this question of access because this idea that even going to a cinema is becoming this rarefied, privileged experience. And this really hits me hard because as a person who has you know, been financially privileged enough to never have to worry about paying to go see a movie. And even if it's something kind of out of the way, it's like, you know, if it comes to my town, I can usually go and pay whatever to go see it. That's hard because these days it's like, and the fact that just things aren't shot on film anymore, all the technological changes that are happening in the industry and the fact that seeing something projected well is becoming a rarer and rarer experience. And so now it's hard because I think a lot of critics feel like, it's really sad if the medium is just becoming a streaming medium, right? It's like that is sort of, you know, we feel that the art form is in some ways being debased. But how do you put that against, well, in order for the art form to continue at all and in order for these vital voices to make their own films, we have to use this. Netflix is doing tremendous good. And this is the, and I think Netflix is obviously the biggest target in these things because what they're doing in terms of funding and financing these movies is hugely important. But you feel also at the same time that sometimes the great movies that they're making are not being well served by the way they're being marketed and so forth. So. I think part of that is simply because I think you do have to think of this as an ecosystem, like yes. a bigger holistic system in which no individual component can sort of exist on its own. And unfortunately, the business model for Netflix largely exists in sort of that walled garden idea that like you're going to go there and that's all you sort of need in your life. And so the idea that you also have theatrical presentation and the sort of access that Netflix allows, they don't need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. This is a good reminder that all I want to do right now is go home and watch the rest of Glow Season 2. <laughs> but also Netflix as a producing entity is investing more and more in, I think, underrepresented voices and content. And I think that's a really interesting to watch out for. But in terms of access and the impact and the ramifications of limited access, look at what happened with Black Panther. People buying out entire theaters just so kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford seeing it could see it. It comes back to me, the idea that I think most people who like movies or love movies can agree on, which is that movies matter and these stories matter and they have impact. And so what we can do in our world, in our part of it as journalists is to, I think, do our part to 
try to help raise up those voices that we see are not being heard or have historically not been given access to cover things. It's why I really appreciate film Twitter as much as I hate film (laughs) Twitter sometimes. The best thing about it, hands down, is that it's been able to connect me with perspectives and film critics from different backgrounds many of whom are freelancers, as Travel mentioned, because they haven't historically had the same paths in to professional film criticism or being able to make a living off of film criticism as more privileged groups. There's no real established pipeline industry-wise to becoming a film critic. That's something that film criticism itself and like critics groups could try to help foster. There's so much that we could all be doing. And Can I just add yes. that I don't think we talk enough about, just generally speaking, of what publications can do in this conversation. And so I'm talking about us here at the LA Times and Variety and Hollywood Reporter and everybody else as well. And that is to your point of how we often think we think of diversity and inclusion as like a one-stop shop type of Thing where you do it once and you're good, right? So here at the LA Times, we have a program called MetPro, which is supposed to be our way of bringing in newer, younger voices into media. That being said, oftentimes those programs, which there are very few that still exist to this day, we are lucky to still have one, but they become the only ways that we bring in people of color and newer voices into a new space. And so what our organizations and news institutions have to also do is rework how they conceptualize what experience looks like and what worthiness looks like in terms of writers. And what I mean by that is we're looking for allegedly a reporter right now to be an entertainment reporter and we want somebody, quote, with experience. What that means then is that nine times out of ten, unfortunately, we're not hiring a person of color in that role. Why? Because they haven't had the opportunity to, you know, study film in school and to intern at the best companies and to build the connections to be a 45-year-old person who has the necessary studio connections or industry connections. Or to have like five or more years of experience working at a trade, all of which, all the trades in town are terrible at diversity. Very much so. None of them have diverse staffs. So many of them still have like prominent, all of their staffs are dominated by white men. And yet they're all reporting on the, the Hollywood's problem with diversity. Right, they're trying well. to hold Hollywood accountable yeah. for all this stuff, but when you look around their newsrooms, it's all white doing? men. Yeah. But you know, they think they're diverse because they got gay white men. That's what it is. Uh, yeah, I'm calling them all out, okay? They think they got gay white men, so they think they're diverse, but really, you're not diverse. Why? Because I'm not going to go there. Anyway, the point is... <laughs> look inward <that> trades. <laughs> Hollywood trades. Everybody has a role to play in this conversation around diversity and inclusion on screen, behind the scenes, in film criticism and in general entertainment reporting. I will now step off my box. (laughs) I am an alum of Variety's internship program and was there for, um, for, you know, I spent 12 years there, but point point taken though because, yeah, I was there, but it was a wonderful staff. It's my best friends in the world. But on that level, in terms of finding other people of color, yeah, it could be a lonely place. I worked at Deadline Hollywood for two years, which is by far the smallest staff of any of the the trades. And currently, probably, um, on average, one of the most diverse. 
And one last thing, Mark. I'm sorry. I know you're trying to wrap up. I just want to add, it's also important not just to have us folks of color and of diverse background hired as reporters and writers, but they also need to be able to ascend the ranks and become editors and become the folks in power that help direct coverage as well. Because a lot of these places that have semi-diverse staffs, it's on those bottom levels, but they really don't have real, quote-unquote, power to influence coverage. And that's where we need to see some of the changes as well. I'm done for real this time, I swear. I second and third and fourth everything that you've all been saying in this room, and I'm very happy to be working with you because this is probably one of the, the wokest staffs I've ever <laughs> had the the real privilege of working with. And I compare my experiences to those of other people that I see in the field, established journalists and critics and ones that are coming up. It really just does show you all of the many, many areas that the entertainment journalism industry is failing at doing what they could easily address in-house. And I like nothing more than when our episodes of The Real get real. And so I want to thank all of you for what I have found. It's a really terrific conversation today. And so why don't you tell everybody where they can find your work online, Travel? I'm online at Travel Anderson. I am at Justin C. Chang. The C is very important. So many people tweet at Justin Chang, and I don't know who that guy is getting him, but he must be kind of annoyed by now. I've not seen the other Justin Chang, no additional C, engage in any of these film Twitter debates that he's been looped into. You can find me at at Genyamato, and in case Mark doesn't say it, you can find him at... Indie Focus. And, uh, and so now for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.